0: hello and welcome to comic boom the comics and education podcast if you're interested in hearing more about the crossover between comics and education then this is the podcast for you My name is Lucy Starbuck-Bradley and each week I'll be joined by a fellow educator, an academic, a librarian or a creator of comics to discuss their journey into comics and provide some inspiration to influence your practice. And hopefully as well shine some light on some titles that you can bring into your libraries and classrooms and also onto your bookshelves at home as well. This week's guest is Kevin Hoffin. Kevin is Senior Lecturer in Criminology working at Birmingham City University. His main research interests are cultural theory and critical media literacy, particularly around crime and justice. He also looks at innovating pedagogy with comics, which is what I talk to him a lot about today. He's working on an EDD to argue for a distinct comics pedagogy suitable for use in higher education. There's so much to cover with Kevin today. I'm delighted to say that Kevin is a listener of the podcast who's now come full circle to be a guest. Um, I love the variety of places that comics can take you. And this conversation is a fantastic representation of that. Among other things, we talk about pedagogy in higher education. We touch on graphic justice, which is the use of comics in relation to law and justice and exploring crime and criminality, the justice system through comics. Um, it's really actually fascinating. And I think you're going to get a lot from this conversation. Here's what Kevin had to say. (laughs) Hello, Kevin. Welcome to Comic Boom. Hello, Kevin. Welcome to Comic Boom. Hi, Lucy. Hi. Uh, Thanks for having me. You are very welcome. It's great to have a listener reach out and want to share some of their learnings and experiences. So welcome. As you know, we normally start the podcast by asking guests to tell us a little bit about their journey as a comics reader. Where did that all start for you?
1: Well, I think... The story is the same for a lot of British kids brought up in the 90s. My first comic was The Beano, and then I moved on to a Fleetways production, uh, Sonic the Comic, and I loved that as a kid. That introduced me to a lot of the writers and artists that I read today in 2000 AD. So, you know, it was like a nice bit of synchronicity there. But also have to give credit uh, to Gossany and Udderzow because I spent a long time as a kid with Asterix books, hiring them from my local library.
0: And what was it that particularly, do you think, drew you to those? Was it something that your parents introduced you to? Is it something you stumbled across on your own? How did, you, my, how did you find them? My parents were always
1: highly keen on me reading so they would buy me comics quite happily, and we'd all go to the library together and I'd get books out, and you'd go back the next week to take them back and it, it was school really never sort of factored into it I, I never I don't remember any sort of comics or graphic novels that I looked at in a school context.
0: So it was very much in that yeah. kind of reading for pleasure yes and do you think there was something about? The comics themselves—that was it. The combination of images, was it the sto- types of stories you're able to access that really kind of drew you in? I, I like comic book storytelling, right? I—that's
1: still my ideal way to tell a story. There's so many different artists out there, and there's so many different styles of art and representations that, as a kid, sort of growing up, there is no way that you can possibly sort of get even a slice of what's out there available. So I I think that for me, what made me decide that I love comics was the way that stories are told. And is it something that you... Have you ever made comics yourself? I recently did begin to make comics, yeah. I mean, I, I wrote a comic... Uh, with a colleague and released it a couple of years ago we hired an artist good jordan biker very nice guy and it was meant to teach criminology theory and it it went down really well you know a lot of students really appreciated the change from reams and reams of long prose text to being able to cover say a theory on a page we got some really good feedback did quite well internationally as well actually
0: that's very cool. We'll perhaps dip back into that a little bit later. Just before we finish talking about your kind of reading experiences as a child, you told us where you started off. But what sorts of things are you reading currently? And you know, what's your main area of interest? You're reading for pleasure, comics, diet at the moment. Give some shout outs to people whose work you're enjoying. Okay, uh, definitely 2000 AD.
1: I am a big fan of uh, Rob Williams as a writer on Dread. Uh, he's also recently started a new series called petrolhead it's on image comics the artist is Pi par and it's one of the most visually stunning pieces of sequential art that I've ever come across there are splash pages that, that will Make your eyes bleed. They're that gorgeous.
0: <laughs> that sounds very enticing. Okay, you're already selling that to me. Anything else? I will pick up anything. I've been, I've been
1: subscribed to this subscription box called Graphic Novel Station for the past year and a half. And basically each month comes to you with a theme around it. And I found myself reading everything and I'm, I'm, I'm moving further and further away from the sort of superheroes and Marvel and DC, that sort of end. And I'm picking up things that I, I never thought I'd see last month. I was reading books about, uh, like underdogs in sports, you know, like people that have raced the New York marathon after not getting up off the couch for ages. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I'll, I literally now I will read anything if it's in a graphic novel form to hand it over
0: I how do I not know about a subscription box for graphic novels this is crazy I need to get that that sounds really good I love the sort of surprise element and that's that's definitely something I'll be checking out <laughs> my partner got it me for my birthday never heard of it either and then
1: and when she handed me this this first box I was like what's this and I was hooked immediately it, honestly it's definitely worth picking up they've got an Instagram
0: I think I am going to have a little look at that. Thank you very much for that tip. So you spoke a little bit about the criminology aspect when you've done some writing, but I know that you're interested in comics not only as a sort of reading for pleasure as a fan, but also from an academic perspective. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? And really, that's what what motivated you to, to reach out to come onto the podcast. And we'd love to hear a little bit about your work in that area and your thinking around kind of the potential of comics. Well, my main area
1: of research now is what I'm doing my doctorate around, which is the affordances of graphic novels in higher education pedagogy. I really feel that the same sort of things that drive me to read for pleasure are driving me to try to include it in my pedagogy and trying to get students engaging more with it. I mean, that comic that we wrote a few years ago, that sort of started a journey. And I thought I could turn this into something, you know, something significant.
0: Mm, So you've moved away from specifically thinking about things just within a criminology perspective and thinking about actually what are the applications across subjects within higher education.
1: Yeah, it's become very interdisciplinary. I have been reading through a lot of what I've come to know as edu-comics, right, comics that have a sort of educational slant to them, either Mm -hmm. formally or informally, and it's just so easy to draw information and retain it. I've been reading a lot of literature where different teachers, particularly in America, uh, mostly at sort of grade school and sort of middle school and high school levels, use comics. And they find it not only a good way to get reluctant readers into reading, to create a more empathetic response from all readers, because it's easier to transplant oneself into the story. You know, like, how would I react in that situation? What would, what would I do surrounded by this, surrounded by X, Y, and Z? I think it's enlightening in a way that reading a lot of prose isn't. Like, if you like show someone a history textbook, it's very dry and it's full of information, mm. it's full of facts. But it doesn't allow for that deeper engagement. I think that reading comics gives an element of criticality to a lot of learning because you are almost forced as a comics reader to use those skills that you acquire in closure towards connecting connecting the
0: dots almost yeah you certainly have to bring something of yourself to the interpretation and that's of definitely what, what what as teachers from a literature perspective, you want to develop in your pupils the ability to analyse, to bring their own perspective to something, to any text that they're reading. But it certainly seems kind of easier to tap into that, from my own experience, when we're talking about starting maybe with the image or the differences between the image, the different yeah. things that people can see. It's a good way into that kind of criticality and real analysis of text. Certainly, yes, I've I, found I'm able to, to do that in class when, when I was teaching a little bit easier very, than with the standard prose.
1: It's very, very valuable for critical media literacy, which I mm. think is something that a lot of students come to us without.
0: Mm, that's interesting. You
1: know, I, I have a theory that media engagement has shifted so far away from what we understood in our generation and earlier to this basically built around a sort of the, the TikTok, Snapchat sort of idea. And and it, it doesn't invite critical media literacy in the way that we understood it. So I've had to really, and I've used comics for this, I've had to reinterpret how I understand media literacy. You know, it's very difficult to use some of the skills that I learned for media literacy in sort of like, individual images and things that scroll across the screen very quickly and that's partially why i now focus my energies towards visual research methods
0: i hadn't really thought about how our media literacy tools need that kind of constant updating as the landscape changes and and what that might mean and that's really interesting just skipping back a little bit, um, mm-hmm. I've been reading some of your papers in preparation for our session today, yeah. and I found you you well, that's referenced one person that's read them. Then, <laughs> yeah, you can uh, put that little tally down. I found this. Uh, you cited some research or uh, or some thoughts from Kirtley from 2020, where that they've broken down the different elements that comics pedagogy can focus on. And I thought this was actually was the first time I've seen it broken down that way and I thought it was really useful that that comics pedagogy can be about teaching with comics, it can be yeah. teaching about comics, mm-hmm. teaching through producing comics and teaching comics production as a means of processing thinking and learning. I just found it a really great way to think about it. But those are the kind of areas that this podcast shifts between when we speak to comics creators when when we speak to academics when we speak to educators we're actually kind of dipping into all of those different areas that are split out there which for me is what makes a podcast really interesting and why we get such varied content i just wondered in terms of your work then are you particularly interested in any one of those or do you think one of those areas has the most potential for us to explore or are you sort of thinking about them on equal terms Well, honestly, I find myself
1: zipping between the four because my original sort of hope was to teach with comics. But then, of course, I created our comic and then that turned into teaching through producing comics. Mm. And that's going to sort of influence me teaching comics production as a way of processing thinking and learning. Mm. And teaching about comics, that's something that you need to do very early on with the class, because a lot of them haven't read comics in that level of detail before. You know, they've seen memes, they've seen newspaper comic strips. Mm. But comics has this visual language, which in theory is universal. And you ask... A student. And I do this on regular occasions. You ask a student, "Okay, what does it mean when there's wavy lines following the character?" And mm. they know, but they don't know why they know.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's so many assumptions and just things that you don't consider to be an understood sign or symbol for something. And then sometimes they are different from between different cultures, right? So you see things in yes, in manga that perhaps you need you do need to have explained to you because you don't know. You know, for example, if I think about. Um, is it in? Sometimes when people are asleep in manga, they have like bubble coming out of their nose. Yeah, and, I, whereas it would tend to be like Zeds floating if someone was asleep in something that was more of a kind of European based comic. It, those kind it of things. Is,
1: there's some very interesting differences. I mean, I'm I I am not a, a a manga reader. I prefer either sort of like European or Western styles. But it does feel like you're picking up a manga you're picking up for the first time and you do have to go back to scratch you're like okay well what 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 does this mean
0: Mm, yeah and really start breaking it down and so it is interesting those kind of assumptions that we have of things that that because they're not based in language i'm saying we but i really mean me i presumed were universal but actually they are still quite rooted in in culture and different in in different places. It is really interesting. But in that higher educational context, you are going to have students from all over over the of world. Course. Same, actually, in prime, primary and, and secondary. But you may well have to sort of explicitly teach what those things are, mightn't you? There was a chapter in the Kirtley book that you mentioned earlier
1: called Misunderstanding Comics. And it was by an author called Jonathan Flowers. And it was basically saying just what we've been talking about that it talks about scott mccloud and how he was sort of instrumental in saying that this is a universal language but what jonathan flowers said was well no not really mm-hmm. because it's only a universal language if you've got the same cultural experience as yeah. as mccloud even within cultures even within western culture there are going to be cultural differences and experiential differences that really sort of alter the way that you engage with visual content mm. so mm.
0: yeah for sure i actually i think neil cone who's a previous guest on the podcast as well he's just got a new book all about the kind of the differences Not necessarily within the image as as we've been discussing, but actually just in like the layout and the way that you, the way that the flow works between panels and things like that between different regions of of production. So I think it's actually yeah really layered tip of the iceberg, tip of the iceberg actually (laughs) blows my mind. The more more I find out about comics, the more terrifyingly aware I am of how much I don't really know very much at all.
1: Yeah, Um, I I, I get that feeling as well. I mean. When, when people r- refer to me as, oh, he's our comics expert, it makes me cringe.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 me too. <laughs> You've talked about visual ethnography in your work as well. Yes. And I'm just intrigued by the term, by its relation to comics, how perhaps comics can be documents that tell us about humanity. And I wondered if you could unpick... Um, What that term means in relation to comics. I've got a quote here. You say educators and researchers who wish to use comics or graphic novels in the classroom can learn a lot from visual ethnographers. Well, what are visual ethnographers, and what can we learn from them? Well, as a comics reader, you're a visual ethnographer,
1: Mm. right? This is it's it's that easy. If you, I mean, you're aware of the term closure, yeah?
0: Yeah. But you can right. explain that for listeners in case they're not okay, quite so a
1: variety of listeners. Closure is the active engagement that the reader has to take with the a comic book page in order to connect the dots together. You know, like what, what's going on in the gutters? How did we move from panel A to panel B? What's the page say versus what each panel says? Is there is there a particular uh, pattern to the layout? Is there references that we need to draw from? etc etc as far as as far as my work can tell the act of closure is essentially the act of doing visual ethnography in visual ethnography you analyze imagery in terms of three parts right the referent which is what the picture is of the content which is actually what's in the picture and the context which is everything else really and that's using closure because once you've isolated these different elements of of the image and analyzed it to extract meaning and let's not forget comics is very much a transactional process in reading so that you're not only taking from the page you're actually giving to it you know to create this sort of like bubble of meaning in the middle mm. it's a very good way to analyze comics and sequential art one of the problems that i identified is that educators are are willing to use comics, but the language of comics is alien to them if they're not Mm. readers themselves.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. So I do some, I run teacher trainings on comics and that's definitely one of the starting points for me is just introducing teachers to, um, unpicking some of the misconceptions they might have about them, but also introducing them to the vocabulary so that they can have the tools with which to describe what it is that they're observing. What I think is
1: effective is by using terms that they know and bridging the gap, which mm. is why when, when I say to them, okay, I'd like you to practice your closure skills on this, and they go, uh, what? And they say, oh, no, uh, vis- vis- do some visual ethnography on this. And they go, ah. right. So it's if you can find sort of an equivalent term that they are aware of, then it's a lot easier to sort of give them that sort of open door and take away that exclusivity. You know, I think that's, that's you know, that's teaching about comics. You know, that, that's that's very much the door in.
0: That's really interesting. So I'm, I'm thinking, what group of people know about visual ethnography? But I guess you're thinking about kind of university educators who are um, maybe using those terms in their field really
1: Yeah, kind of, frequently. like mostly social scientists there. Yeah, so, exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but that's a really good point. And just thinking about some of those transfer points, I think if I was thinking of an equivalent, so I come at things from a primary educator's perspective. Sometimes when I'm talking um, to teachers about the panel size and the pacing of a of a sequence, I might, I, ha- I feel like a thousand people will jump jump up and down saying that's, that's nonsense if I say this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. I have and i stand by it made links between that and the equivalent of kind of changing sentence length for impact in the prose writing you know when you're looking about short sentences increase like the drama of the situation and that's the same thing that's going on with panel structures so trying to yeah get those points where people can use their existing knowledge and, and make the jump over to something new that perhaps they're less confident in i really like that that's, yeah yeah that's great <laughs> loads already so i'm gonna dig back down into your criminology background because i don't really know very much about it at all i'm just aware it's a thing and i thought you perhaps might know some more about this about the graphic justice movement and the intersection between comics and criminal justice if you can tell me about the way that those two things interact or how comics can be used in that field i think it'll be really interesting Okay, cool. Well, let's
1: draw back from comics a second and think more about storytelling, mm. right? Mediated storytelling. Because a lot of what I do with comics, I have twisted and sort of utilised with teaching wider media literacy and criminology. Mm. I taught on a module called Crime Media Culture, which was exactly what it says on the tin, for about five or six years. And basically, whenever you are sort of watching a A program, or playing a video game, or listening to music that talks about crime. What's What's happening is, if you're not say a social scientist yourself, if you're not a victim of crime, if you're not a prolific offender, if you don't work in law enforcement, that depiction in that media is slowly starting to build your understanding of your reality of crime. Because you've been so separate from it, that media is a way for you to sort of engage from a safe distance. And it it can lead to massive distortions. And people who get all their information from crime media end up getting very, very different views of what is and what constitutes crime and criminality and what's actually going on out there.
0: Mm, Is that when you end up with people's fear of crime being much higher than their kind of actual risk of becoming a victim of crime because they get kind of a warped sense of of what's happening? Precisely. Yes, that's exactly it. Right.
1: So I I used to use that module basically to uh, unpack a lot of that and sort of teach them what is actually going on out there and how to
0: sort of see past the smoke and mirrors. So in a way, comics could be as well as part of a solution of that. It is also part of a problem of that because often certain genre of comics can be quite violent, can depict a lot of crime. And, you know, I'm thinking of certain genres where where violent comics. So it's quite interesting that it it sits on both sides of, of that issue. Oh yeah. But, I mean, like, moving back in towards Comics,
1: there is a lot going on. It, it, it's a useful way to discuss sort of thought experiments, particularly because the central tenet of all storytelling is conflict. It's been like that since we, we drew on walls in caves. And Throughout the sort of early days of comics, you'll be aware that the big sellers were horror and crime. In fact, crime eclipsed mm. horror tenfold. And in that, we would have sort of these studies of criminal characters. We would have views of the police. And if you weren't sort of, uh, like, say, constructing your belief system around it, there's still a lot in there that you could use to sort of question what the nature of justice is. I mean, a lot of superhero comics are, are very, very good at this. You know, I mean, like you, you have characters like Batman who won't kill under any circumstance. right? And I, I ask my students quite often. Okay, so at what point does Batman become responsible for all the people that the Joker kills after he's escaped from prison? Or, you know, on the other hand, you've got the Punisher, whose view of crime is completely black and white. You know, so there's a lot of interesting sort of thought experiments out there, Mm, but you have to be able to recognize them as that.
0: Yeah. And is there a role as well, or is there a a practice? I kind of imagine there must be an an existing practice around. Offenders talking, working through their own experiences through comics as well. I was
1: hoping after the first issue of the From Villain to Hero that future issues would concentrate on uh, having contributions from offenders Mm. and telling their stories and giving them skills to, you know, come out and say, oh, I, I made this comic. I have used this therapeutically. Unfortunately, COVID hit. Yeah, which put barriers on absolutely everything. Uh,
0: Yeah, I think I I spoke to um, Hannah Berry at the end of 2023 and she had hopes to do projects in prisons as part of her laureateship. But again, it was scuppered by, by COVID rather drastically. But I think there's definitely could be some really powerful and fruitful work to do in that area. I think it would be brilliant. Oh, there definitely is. But the momentum
1: still hasn't got back up. Right. I, yeah. I still don't think that we're in the same place as we were pre-COVID.
0: Some of your research discusses the idea of a best practice toolkit for educators. What kind of recommendations would you be making in that toolkit?
1: Well, this is sort of like going back and using sort of equivalent terms, like, you know, where closure and visual ethnography sort of cross over. Mm. But in terms of pedagogy, comics, although they're growing in momentum, it's still very much outside it's it's still very much an outsider thing. We're starting yeah. to see more and more teachers writing about using it, but it feels quite disparate.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And when I do teacher training, my first kind of questions are, who reads comics? Who has comics in their classroom? Who teaches with the comics that are in their classroom and, and it's sort yeah. of dwindling hands? I think it's growing, but it can be quite easy, I think, to get in a bit of a bubble once once it's something that you know that you're interested in that you kind of attract other people that are also interested in it and you, you exactly. feel like oh everyone's using comics and actually yeah it's, it's not the
1: case and what i think needs to be done and my recommendations are that pedagogists and educators they love the idea of a toolkit mm. right they 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 love an accessible toolkit that they can just tap into and tap out of whenever they whenever they want to Right, and with with my plan to formalise an HE pedagogy based around comics, what that's going to do is is going to present this sort of accessible toolkit where comics readers and non comics readers both feel more confident to be able to navigate comics in the classroom. A lot of the methods that people like Brozo, Kurtley, Smith, Backus have. Have all talked about could easily be altered and played around with and given a sort of increased level of sophistication in order to be used at HE. You know, I mean, like it's essentially the same lessons, but yeah. just a little bit more upscaled.
0: Yeah, I guess that's, that's what, one of the things I was going to ask you was around so if we think about pedagogy as being a, the method of teaching itself, do we need a distinct pedagogy to work with comics in the classroom a a completely different way of of teaching maybe not maybe not necessarily emphasis on completely but just a different way adapted way of teaching to include (laughs) comics or is it are we able to use the same pedagogical techniques as we would maybe this with other forms of media whether it be film whether it be other forms of literature that it's the same pedagogy but with a different sort of subject knowledge, increased subject knowledge on comics?
1: Well, I I believe that all media can be analysed with pretty much the same tools. Mm. So if your pedagogy is going to be around media literacy and multimedia aspects, then, yeah, there's, there's no real reason for a distinct pedagogy. But I do think that there is a market for... Putting comics in the classroom due to the affordances associated with comics. One of the examples that I use quite frequently is comics that are based on uh, Shakespeare. If you yeah. go and see a Shakespeare play, right, then you've got to uh, a keep up with the actors, which, as a deaf person, I can't really do, mm. and b you've got to sort of you've got to un- understand it uh, to a degree. If someone hands you the script to it, you've got that in front of you. But it's very difficult to match up what's being said with the stage directions. It's, it, it, it's harder to visualize. If you're reading a Shakespeare comic, you basically, you can see the stage directions and you can read it at your own pace. Like you can't shout at the actors, can you do that last bit again, please? Yeah, while yeah I catch exactly. up. Much as you'd like and, to sometimes. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. Oh, <laughs> I watched I watched Hamlet and got lost within the first 10 minutes. You know, it, it was at the Globe. It was a fantastic experience, but I didn't get a damn thing from it. But it, it, it's a very individual media in that way. Even if you're watching a video or a film, you're going to have to rewind to get back to a bit that you want to. In... in In a class of 30 people, if 30 students are all reading comics, one of them needs to go back to a bit, they can go back a page, and it doesn't affect anybody else's enjoyment or anybody else's consumption. Mm. It allows for both that individualization of education and group, right? But my fear, and this is a fear that was passed on to me by my supervisor, (laughs) Hilu, She thinks that comics as a critical pedagogy, i.e., you know, being subversive and being uh, Mm. critical of current tenets, like in the same way as as Freire, she thinks that by turning it into a distinct pedagogy, you may remove the teeth from it. Which I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced, but it's always in in the peripheral vision, you know.
0: (laughs) there's interesting, just thinking from a reading for for pleasure perspective, I was at a conference and somebody, actually this wasn't from reading for pleasure perspective that they were talking about, but I was thinking about it from reading for pleasure perspective. Somebody basically was talking about a fear around comics becoming more mainstream and therefore losing this essential characteristic of this kind of, of being an outside critical voice, as you were saying. And I I was thinking in terms of um, the classroom that, I think sometimes for some children one of the things that they enjoy about reading comics is that kind of I'm not supposed to be reading this (laughs) like this is something my teacher wishes I was reading something else but I'm going to read this and it's kind of a little it's an act of rebellion to read a comic and so the more accepted and the more your teacher's like oh I love comics that, that it might could potentially lose that I actually don't think that happens in real reality my experience of being a teacher that that loved comics was that the children just felt embraced and enjoyed it I think we we were all in it together that kind of we're being a little bit rebellious here by making this our, our thing that we have together and it was a as a collaborative rebellion rather than against me as the teacher in the classroom but i do think that there is something around that what draws people to comics is that that it's outside I, of the mainstream but then I also think, you they they're for sale in waterstone so they're not that outside of the mainstream yeah, I, I think we have to be we have to
1: think about canon, right, in, yeah. in this terminology, you know, mm, what comics, yeah. I, I don't want to say what comics would be safe for the classroom, but, you know, like, obviously there's going to be some that we would use more than others, mm. you know, like, and there's yeah, always going to be subver- yeah. yeah, yeah, there's always yeah. going to be, like, subversive, outliers. dark comics and mm. outliers that, you know, like... But I'm I'm never going to say as a teacher, oh yeah, you shouldn't be reading that. That's that's really dark, right? If 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 somebody comes to me and says, Kevin, uh, I'd like to get into comics. I I like this. What can you suggest? I'll always go to you know like my go to is always like deep diverse stuff because Mm. there's enough coverage of like Marvel and DC stuff out there and the big two and. I would rather that my students went to something that's written and produced by diverse creators because Mm -hmm. it enhances the story because it's a story that that people aren't going to have seen before from a perspective that people haven't necessarily considered. Yeah. Right. So I'm I'm far more likely to do that. I mean, like at the minute I'm going through a major sort of trip on boom studios.
0: Tell me more. Some,
1: Some of their, some of their recent works have been fantastic. I mean, like, there was one a while ago called The Many Deaths of Layla Starr
0: Ooh, yes. oh yes it yep. was, oh, it I was that a one.
1: beautiful book it was brilliant absolutely loved every second of it then there was like, Eat the Rich which I really really enjoyed and you know I'll you know, use that to teach Marxism at some point but I would rather that I would guide my students to diverse things that not necessarily anybody else would sort of guide them to
0: yeah.
1: like yeah. if you put in like to an algorithm or like Amazon or something like Captain America and it brings up deadpool it brings up wolverine and it's yeah. like well that's so not much more really that. that different you may yeah. enjoy that yeah great and if so go for it but you know i i think there's more fun to be had than like just deep diving into things
0: and i think that's where that that subject knowledge and having that knowledge of the variety of comics that are available is really important because you're able to make those meaningful recommendations and you're able to expand horizons much yeah. more effectively we are coming to the end of the podcast kevin it's been brilliant to speak to you today i feel like we could uh, carry on chatting all afternoon actually there's so much to to talk about i wondered if you could just think about some takeaways that we could leave listeners thinking about some practical things perhaps three key points that you'd like to prompt some thinking for anybody listening with
1: okay well i talk a lot about the affordances of using comics you know and we've talked about curtly's uh, four typologies but the one that we didn't really sort of uh, focus on was using comics as a way to process learning and thinking which
0: mm.
1: is it's a world opening experience and it's so easy to do any teacher can take an a4 piece of paper fold it and create an eight page mini comic with just a pair of scissors and use that to get their students to tell a story we are storytellers and we understand things better if they come at us in the form of stories so we should take advantage of that and a lot of A lot of students they can't necessarily verbalize or even write down what it is that they are feeling about a certain thing but they can draw it you know so i think that the potential of comic books in classroom is is is, it is thousandfold and we should be as educators looking into things like this more because it enables accessibility right uh, carter said in Vakis that anybody who has eyes is a visual learner and i'm not entirely sure that i completely buy that but i do think that we can draw a lot from comics as as teaching tools that we can't necessarily from prose tech
0: yeah i completely agree to add one comic or book to our to be read piles tomorrow could also be a book about comics that suits too. what would you recommend
1: you've just saved me with that last sentence (laughs) i recommend that anybody who has even the slightest interest in comics and how comics work picks up will eisner's book on comics and sequential
0: art brilliant what is it that makes you think that that's such a good one to to start myself with
1: Will Eisner, as anybody will know, is basically uh, the, the, the spirit is pretty much the blueprint for uh, a lot of modern sort of crime comics. And all the sort of technical details that we consume, they have a basis in, in meaning. They have this term, and, and it's like that disconnect between you know what something means, but you don't know why it means that. And Will Eisner's books really hammer home the difference between widths of panels, how speech can both add to and take away from an image. I prefer Eisner to MacLeod, simply because while MacLeod says, "Oh, comics is a universal language," and then doesn't really qualify it, Eisner goes a bit further and says that comics is a universal language for those people with the same cultural knowledge and background, mm. and that there's that and, and that there's a transaction that takes place in terms of reading because the, the the skills that we learn in closure, you know, he he, he, he he puts them across very, very well. But it also leaves open that question that, okay, so if you don't have that cultural experience, how would you produce something that is more or more universal? The the only answer that I seem to have come up with so far is that we need to really concentrate on teaching about comics, you know. But, yeah, Will Eisner's uh, three books on instruction. Uh, Comic sequential art is the most important one. That's first. And the others, graphic storytelling, that's also a good. And the third one is about expressive anatomy. That's probably a bit more of actual creators themselves. But if you are interested in the science behind comics... Eisner's books are fantastic.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for introducing that to us. And thank you for coming onto the show and being a guest today. I've really loved discussing, debating and dipping into new areas that I haven't really thought of before. So thank you for coming on the show and sharing your expertise.
1: Thank you. I've loved every second.
0: There you have it. I found that conversation absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much to Kevin for coming onto the podcast and sharing your expertise and your thoughts with us. If you'd like to keep in touch with Kevin, you can find his Twitter handle and his Instagram handle in the show notes. So check him out there and you can keep up to date with how his doctoral studies are going. My comic recommendation this week is a graphic novel for adults published by Avery Hill it's by Charlotte Christensen it's called what we don't Talk about it's a really beautiful comic examining contemporary issues of race of bigotry and the challenges that interracial couples can face it covers the story of a weekend when a young couple go back for the first time to stay with one of the parents and explores the difficulty of navigating some of the prejudices that they come across when spending time with parents. It's really, really beautifully told story capturing a moment in time and covering some really important issues. I really enjoyed reading it. It's thought-provoking. It stays with you for, for a while and definitely recommend it. Thanks so much for the welcome back with our first episode of Series 4 last week. Had some lovely feedback, particularly some really nice feedback on Twitter by regular listener October Jones. I'm going to read that out to you. October has just done an amazing installation in her public library of really putting picture books and graphic novels at the heart of their collection there. a Really um, inspiring project, so do check that out. And she says that... The podcast has been absolutely instrumental in shaping her project, has brought many authors, illustrators, cartoonists and artists to the forefront of her stock list. And the passion and knowledge that I share with each episode is pure magic. Isn't that nice? I can't tell you how nice that was to read. So thank you so much, October, for that. Good luck with the launch of your reading space. I'm sure that is going to be hugely, hugely popular. And just thank you for being such an inspirational force out there, putting into practice all the things that we discussed on the podcast. It's um, amazing to see. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by giving a donation by either buying one of my comics or buying me a comic. You can do that by logging into ko-fi.com forward slash LucySB. That's ko-fi.com forward slash LucySB. That helps me to pay for the outgoings to keep the podcast on the airwaves and is much, much appreciated. And you can also support the podcast by leaving a review on whichever platform you listen on, by sharing with your colleagues and network, by uh, leaving lovely messages on Twitter and on Instagram, as October has done. Again, that is very much appreciated. Always willing to have feedback. If you've got suggestions of people that you would like to have covered, of topics that you'd like to have covered, please do let me know. I would love to have some feedback from listeners to help curate the guest list. You can follow me on Twitter or X on at Lucy underscore Bradley, or you can follow the podcast on Instagram at comic underscore boom underscore podcast. Next week we have got an absolute classic episode jam-packed with recommendations as I am joined again by Paul Register to talk about this year's Excelsior Award shortlists. We'll be covering the white list for Key Stage 2 and also the blue list for Key Stage 3 pupils so we'll be talking in depth about all the titles on that shortlist. Come along, have a listen and be prepared to add to your reading list. It is a great episode. That's all from me today. You've been listening to Comic Boom which is hosted and produced by me, Lucy Starbuck-Fradley. Thanks for listening.